2: Podcast for all things special counsel. I'm your host, and I might know a thing or two about special counsel investigations into Donald Trump. Andy McCabe,
1: uh, and I'm I'm AG. Uh, you know, F, you know, AG from Mueller. She wrote, and Andy, if you had told me five years ago, as I was setting up $59 microphones at my kitchen table to record the very first episode of Mueller, she wrote uh, back in November of 2017. If you told me back then that in five years time, there'd be a second special counsel investigation and I'd be hosting a podcast about it with you, I'd have never
2: believed it. But here we are. Yes, here we are. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the podcast. Um, This is our first episode, and it will serve as a kind of intro into who Jack Smith is, what a special counsel is, what they can do. Uh, What are some of the main differences between the conditions here and the conditions during the Mueller investigation? And finally, what makes this special counsel different?
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of people uh, are hung up on what happened in the Mueller investigation and worried that that will happen here, too. Uh, But we're also going to cover news that's relevant to the special counsel investigations, including some uh, new testimony uh, we're going to talk about in this show. And the recent 11th Circuit ruling, which we'll discuss with The Guardian's new Trump Department of Justice Uh, political investigations reporter and our friend Hugo Lowell. But first, I want to ask everyone, please follow this podcast, rate this podcast, subscribe to this podcast. That small act takes a couple of seconds. It's free, but it really does mean a lot to us. So thank you very much.
2: All right. So let's dive in and let's talk a little bit about what a special counsel does and why Merritt Garland appointed one. And so I think, A.G., there's no better place to start here on the why question than to point out the value. There's really only one value that the special counsel brings to DOJ and the A.G., and that is the ability to distance the department, to bring a sense of apolitical independence to what otherwise would be a politically charged kind of high profile, intricate investigation. Jack Smith is a guy who, at the end of the day, does not owe his job to the current president of the United States. And that's really the important thing to remember here. We are in a situation where the main target of this case is of course, Donald Trump. And Donald Trump recently announced he's going to run for president. He is running for president now in the in the 2024 election. We can all assume probably pretty uh, confidently that our current president, Joe Biden, will also be running against him. So think of the weirdness there. If Merrick Garland keeps the investigation under his direct supervision, Garland to some degree, owes his job to Joe Biden, the guy who's running against the person you're investigating. Very sticky, very weird. So you bring in a special counsel to get some arm's length distance from that kind of stink of politicization.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. And so, you know, when you have the you know the political opponent running for president, but also this investigation uh, is running up against possible criminal. Probes into members of Congress, right? Like they seized uh, Perry's Rep. Perry's phone. uh, The DOJ did, and you know, if if it gets to a point where they find something, it also does not look good for the Attorney General appointed by the current Democratic president to be in charge of that kind of investigation as well. And that kind of brings me into the scope because uh, this seems like a much broader scope than. You know, we had when uh, we were looking at the Mueller investigation, uh, and, and also the way in which the Mueller investigation started, which I know you have intimate knowledge of, <laughs> and, uh, and the way that this one uh, started. I think there are two different things there. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it when we talk about the differences, but let's talk about the scope of
2: this special counsel investigation. Sure. So Jack Smith has been given a very broad uh, scope to begin with. He's so technically, he's been given the authority to continue the investigation into the potential mishandling of government property, sensitive documents, and presidential records at the Mar a Lago Resort, Donald Trump's uh, residence at the moment, as well. And also to kind of oversee all of the government investigation around January 6th, the attack on our Capitol. So if you think about the vast numbers of people who have already been indicted and prosecuted in that case, the the potentially hundreds more who may, And then put that chunk of work aside and then think about like where this investigation is clearly going. And that is looking at the former president, his aides, his staffers, the uh, political figures, like you mentioned, who may have been involved or communicating with him in the lead up to January 6th, may have known about it, may have had some role in helping uh, plan for that activity. So Smith has got his hands full. He's got a very, very wide lane to drive this investigation down. And it'll be interesting to see, of course, where it lands.
1: Yeah. And how does the recent conviction of two Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, of seditious conspiracy play into an investigation into Donald Trump? Does it make it easier for, for Jack Smith? Can he now say that this was seditious conspiracy? Does it play a role at all, this recent conviction? Because it was a big deal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Really big deal. I'm going to give you the the hated sports analogy here. This is like if you're, this is like you got two NBA teams playing and they're fighting each other under the paint and you're scoring on your opponent, you know, from uh, kind of mid-range jumpers. And then all of a sudden someone on your team backs it way behind the three-point line and starts burying the ball. You've just shown your opponent that you can take it to a whole new level, that you're capable of beating them in a way that they didn't think about. And that's kind of what's happened with this result. This is a loud message, um, not just to Donald Trump, but to anyone who might fall within the scope of that investigation. The DOJ is prepared and capable of putting on a complicated case, a moonshot, right? A charge of seditious conspiracy. They're able to take that in front of a jury, put the evidence in front of them, it convinces them and bring back a conviction against a top level, in this case with the Oath Keepers trial, planner, somebody who wasn't breaking windows, wasn't attacking the Capitol, didn't even set foot on the grounds during that day, if you believe him. And we're able to get the most significant conviction against him. So if you think you're in the scope at that level, that kind of organizational level of the January 6th investigation, this just sent a chill down your spine because DOJ has the will and the ability to convince a jury that planners, you know, the top of the food chain should pay a high price for what they did.
1: Yeah, and I think if I'm a defense attorney for somebody like Enrique Tarrio, who uh, is charged with seditious conspiracy and has a trial coming up soon, I might be saying, hey, maybe now's a good time to cut a deal. That's right. And if there are any ties between the leaders of these militia groups, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and other figures like Roger Stone or Michael Flynn or Alex Jones or anybody at the Willard, you know then you, you i think you can start rolling uphill a little bit that would be the one thing i would think would impact perhaps jack smith's work the most is is maybe getting some of these oath keepers leaders and, and proud boys these folks who have been charged who haven't gone to trial yet now see that the government can win these trials might be having second thoughts about uh, rolling on bigger fish
2: Totally. There is nothing that motivates cooperators like the increased prospect of getting uh, convicted and sentenced to a lot of time. And so, the, absolutely, those two trials, particularly the Proud Boys trial that's coming up and the second Oath Keepers trial, those folks are reevaluating the math right now. They're trying to think, okay, maybe is it too late to come in and tell them what I really know? And in addition to that, you now have convicted some pretty big fish, Rhodes, Megs, these other guys in the, from the, the trial this week, who are looking at serious time. I mean Megs particularly, he got convicted of the most charges of any of them. And th- some of those folks might be like, "Okay, now it's time to get real. Maybe I could go for a rule 32 if I cooperate with the government after I've been convicted, I could open myself up to a potential sentencing reduction down the road." So yeah, there's all kinds of opportunity here. All the the you know, all the pieces on the chessboard are are rethinking their positions right now.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that uh, Jack Smith is well aware of that. And I mean, uh, something else that is within the scope is the same thing that was in the scope of the Mueller investigation is obstructions into the investigation itself. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about that. I think you think <laughs> you might have some familiarity with obstruction of justice, as in you became the acting director of the FBI after a very obstructive act uh, on you know by by the former president by firing Jim Comey. So let's talk a little bit about uh, obstruction, and also if that extends in his scope to obstructing another official proceeding, the January six committee hearings and investigations. I, I'm wondering about that myself.
2: I think it's all on the table, Allison. I think you know people tend to reflexively think about obstruction in the context of witness tampering in a trial. Right, the mob boss goes on trial, and he and he gets the witness to change the story at the last minute, or something like that. That uh, that. Obstruction of justice is much, much broader than that. All you have to have is evidence that somebody obstructed an official proceeding. It could be any proceeding. It could be a grand jury investigation. It could be a special counsel investigation. It certainly could be a congressional investigation. So. If Jack Smith and his team believe, let's say, for example, there was witness tampering with respect to the committee's work and putting on their public hearings and that sort of thing, that is certainly related to January sixth. All that arises out of January sixth. So I think it would be well within the scope of his authority in terms of his, you know, investigative authority.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I want to talk next about some of the differences between the Mueller probe and the Jack Smith investigations, because uh, a lot of folks were understandably underwhelmed by the Mueller investigation because we didn't know, as he knew right off the bat, that he wasn't going to indict Donald Trump. So a lot of a lot of that feeling, that public feeling had to do with things that were beyond Mueller and his team's control. I mean, you asked Rod Rosenstein to appoint a special counsel under some pretty extraordinary circumstances.
2: I definitely did. And uh, I'm I'm having a PTSD moment just <laughs> thinking back on it now. But um, it was abundantly clear to me and my team at that time that we had to get this investigation in the hands of a special counsel, get it out of the FBI generally and out of uh, DOJ's lane, generally put it in a special counsel's hands. So it was a torturous uh, series of meetings with Rosenstein over over about a week and a half.
1: I imagine any and... meeting with Rosenstein is torturous. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, You have no idea. Um, just trying to persuade him, he was really initially dead set against it and slowly kind of persuading him, but also turning up the pressure by uh, opening the case and then informing him that we were going to go forth and brief Congress on the fact that we'd opened the case. And then you really, uh, he had to move at that point. But it was our intention, and very clearly communicated to him in those meetings, and also in the documents that we created to to memorialize the opening of the case, that we were opening the case for two reasons, not one. It was the possibility that there may have been criminal obstruction, and that you know, uh, uh, coming out of the firing of Jim Comey, but also that there was a potential national security threat. Um, If the campaign had colluded with the Russians, which we didn't know, but we had reason to believe that that was possible, um, that that could present a threat to national security. We now know that Rod Rosenstein in a series of memos to uh, special counsel Mueller really narrowed the scope of that investigation, narrowed uh, Mueller's authority as special counsel to really focus very tightly um, on primarily the, the idea of could he be charged with a crime. They didn't really do much with the broader counterintelligence concerns around the Trump connections, potential connections to Russia. Well, the many connections that people within the campaign had to um, Russians. So yeah, I think the difference here is we had an acting attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, who worked um, diligently to limit uh, Mueller's authority, what he could and would do, and also limited him... In a particularly opaque way, this was a series of memos that he was giving to Mueller that we never even found out about until the whole thing was over and those documents were later uh, released to the public. Very different situation here, right? Garland has been very clear. Hey, Jack Smith is coming in. He gets Mar a Lago. He gets one six and everything, and that comes from either of those. So he looks. I, I think. I think Smith has a much stronger hand here.
1: Yeah. And he also doesn't have this sort of Damocles hanging over his head, uh, aka the threat of being fired, which is an obstructive act. But you know, we now know there were many times, especially with the testimony of Don McGahn, that uh, Trump tried seriously to curtail and or fire special counsel. And we, sim- we don't have now, we don't have a Rod Rosenstein and we
2: don't have a Bill Barr here that's absolutely right and um and let's be let's be honest too the president's very different now than it was then right joe biden is an institutionalist he has Exhibited, I think, a a great deal of restraint and acknowledgement of the independence of the Department of Justice. It doesn't appear that since he's been president in two years now, it doesn't appear to have interfered with DOJ in any way. He certainly hasn't tweeted about criminal cases. He certainly hasn't attacked federal judges on Twitter. And all, you know, he hasn't like uh, said that subjects of criminal cases should like shut up and not talk to the government, (laughs) discouraging people from like doing the right thing and providing information. So, yeah. We have a very different president. I, I couldn't imagine uh, Biden threatening to, you know, try to take some action or pressure someone to fire Jack Smith. The other thing I think is important for um, our folks to understand is like the legal uh, kind of framework around the special counsel. It's not a law; it's simply a DOJ policy, uh, but it is codified at. I'll give you the site for those nerds out there, 28 CFR 600.7, and it's very clear that a special counsel can only be fired by the attorney general, not the president, not Congress, but the attorney general, and he can only be fired for really pretty serious stuff, misconduct, dereliction of duty, uh, incapacity, conflict of interest, or other good cause. So essentially for Garland to step in and fire the guy he appointed, he would have to very publicly and at least to the hill make a case for jack smith having you know done something really wrong or you know showed some other good cause that he that he couldn't continue his job and that's uh, obviously you know not something that anybody imagines will happen at this point
1: yeah and and something else that's different is um you know i think Mueller from the jump knew that he was not going to indict donald trump because of an office of legal counsel memo prohibiting him from indicting a sitting president, we don't have that problem anymore. In fact, the only Office of Legal Counsel memos that have been raised recently with regard to the one six investigation are when Meadows, I think, was trying to uh, cite some sort of total blanket immunity uh, be based on Office of Legal Counsel memos. And DOJ in a filing said that's not the case. We can indict you if we want to. Uh, and so that's right. DOJ, there are there's no restrictions here for who can be indicted.
2: That's right. No restrictions, and you know, logistically, I mean, one of our biggest challenges when Mueller got designated was we had to basically build a mini U.S. attorney's office for Mueller. We had to we had to grab investigators, which we did from all over the country, from all the different field offices that had been looking at the Russia case. We had to pull secretaries and analysts and um you know computer uh, IT people and computers themselves like build an entirely independent IT system that where they could do their work and and hold their records that wouldn't be accessible by DOJ and and the FBI so there was this massive kind of logistical effort in standing up a team DOJ has been very clear in this case that uh Jack Smith is basically coming in, To oversee the big team, primarily out of the FBI Washington field office and the D.C. uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. He's just coming in and sitting on top of that infrastructure that already exists. He's made it clear with his own statement that he's not going to slow this thing down in any way. So you can be confident that the investigators and the attorneys who are really the nuts and bolts of this work, who've already been doing it for quite some time, who have that institutional knowledge, they're going to stay in place and keep doing that. That will help him really maintain or accelerate the pace rather than having to take this pause to kind of rebuild the wheel
1: yeah for real and uh, that that kind of myth busting is one of the, th- the things that uh, I'm glad that we're uh, we're talking about and I want to dispel some additional myths but we need to take a quick break so everybody stick around we'll be right back <laughs> Everybody, welcome back. Uh, before the break, I said I wanted to dispel some myths, and you were—you uh, briefly touched on Andrew that the investigation has not been delayed or slowed down at all. And I just want to talk about some of the components that show that, including just today we saw Pat Cipollone going into the um, grand jury uh, with uh, Wyndham, who was brought in in January, uh, and. We know that uh, all of the subpoenas have stayed in place and the, and the deadlines to turn in documents and, and testimony uh, have been maintained. And so talk a little bit more about some of the things that have just kept going uh, in, you know, with respect to the, the fact that Jack Smith, just like you said, comes in and just sits on top now of this infrastructure that already exists. We've got Raskin who came in and Wyndham who was brought in. And, uh, and it's seemingly like Mary Dorman, like all of these folks are just now uh, uh, reporting up through the special counsel office, quote unquote, rather than having to build a whole new sort of infrastructure.
2: Yeah, that's so important. Um, And so on a a couple different levels, I think first, and I I can say this as an attorney, uh, I'm allowed to throw shots at attorneys generally, and I will now. No one likes to, to delay things and ask for more time more than attorneys. Like having an attorney meet the first deadline is almost impossible. It never happens. So here you have a guy who comes in uh, very publicly, is now responsible for easily the most controversial investigations in the country. And he has some uh, important deadlines, like he's bumping up against them like days into the new job, right? Um, the, The appeal before the 11th Circuit is a great example. He could easily have had DOJ... Ask the court for more time to get up to speed on the issues, to understand the pleadings better, to get debrief, you know, briefed by his team and all that stuff. But he didn't. Not only did he not ask for time, he actually weighed in and oversaw kind of some of the submissions. And I know we're going to talk about that in a minute. So I think that's a great sign. Another indicator that things are going to move quickly is the result in that 11th Circuit finding that basically takes all those Mar-a-Lago documents out of the hands of the special master. And now DOJ and those FBI investigators can just charge forward, full speed ahead, conducting the investigation that they've been wanting to do for the last couple of months, but couldn't because they didn't officially have investigative access to those documents. So I think there's all kinds of good signs here that the team and its new leader, Jack Smith, appreciate the fact that clock is ticking over their heads. They don't have a lot of runway uh, to deal with on these cases until they're going to find themselves right in the middle of a heated election, which makes things infinitely more complicated. So they are are charging forward with uh, all due haste.
1: Yeah, although it seems like a lot of Republicans are now taking the off-ramp that they should have taken in 2015 (laughs) from supporting Donald Trump. No doubt. But uh, one other myth I wanted to bust here before we get into another bit of news uh, is that Congress cannot defund the special counsel. Now, they can do a lot to muck up and gum up the works, uh, the Republican Congress, when they take over in January. But they cannot defund the special counsel because the special counsel is funded out of a permanent treasury fund, if I remember correctly, from the from the Mueller investigation. And I think that you and I discussed that uh, way back in the day because a lot of people had concerns that that, that uh, Mueller would be defunded. And I just kind of wanted to dispel the myth that they can just Marjorie Taylor Crean can just come in with the Holman rule and, and, and defund Jack Smith without getting the signature of the president and having it pass the Senate or anything like that.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. The funding for the special counsel activities is pretty secure. It's pretty uh outside the reach of politics, which is great. Um, because of course, you know, we had in the another thing that makes the Mueller investigation so strange, we had a special counsel appointed and then basically was opposed or or frustrated by the the DOJ that appointed them and the president that oversees that DOJ. So they were like kind of fighting for their lives from the very beginning. That's of course not the case here. Um but so back in the Mueller days we were worried about DOJ defunding the special counsel activities, but not a concern because those those funds are protected and designated for the special counsel. Congress can always come back the next year and try to retaliate against DOJ and maybe kind of chop their budget down a little bit because they don't like the things that are happening, the decisions that are being made over there. But um, I think, again, it's important to look at the authorizing policy, which says very clearly that while The AG is the only person who oversees Um, the special counsel, he doesn't do it on a day-to-day basis. He's allowed to ask for explanations of decisions that were made and things like that and kind of get briefed on things every once in a while. But it is not a day-to-day briefing by briefing level of supervision. So uh, Jack Smith has got the independence to do what he needs to do. He'll have the money to do it. It's not a ton of money in terms of government work, right? We're talking about a couple million bucks, which is really a drop in the bucket. Um, When I was Deputy Director in the FBI, our our budget was about nine billion dollars a year. So, <laughs> million here, million there. You can pretty much you can you always find that if you look hard enough.
1: Yeah, very true. Um, all right, thanks for that. And now I want to talk about one of the very first acts that Jack Smith took as special counsel. Now, for, I mean, first of all, he he was, you know, we'll talk about him being read in on you know the Eleventh Circuit stuff uh, because he made an appearance there. But on Thanksgiving. Jack Smith wrote a letter to the 11th Circuit in response to a letter that Trump's lawyer, Jim Trustee, wrote to the 11th Circuit uh, the day after oral arguments. And during oral arguments in the special master case, the court asked Trustee to name a single case where equitable jurisdiction to appoint a special master and enjoin the government happened. Like, name, just give me a single case. And Jim Trustee couldn't name a case.
2: That's never the... The preferred response to a judge's question, but um, you're you're exactly right. So uh, to make up for that uh, for that lack of uh, having a case when he needed it. Uh, Jim Trustee did write the 11th Circuit the next day and told him that he had thought of a case. And so he brought up or referred them to the, I'll call it the Rudy case. If you remember, AG uh, Rudy Giuliani's office was searched in April of 2018, his law office, and a special master was appointed by the court to go through all the evidence that was uh, seized as uh, pursuant to the search warrant and filter out anything that might have been covered by attorney-client Privilege. Uh, so Jim Trustee tried to tell the 11th Circuit that these cases were the same. <laughs> I mean, they're so clearly not. But uh, Jack Smith had none of it. And I'm going to quote him here because it's, it's pretty direct. Jack wrote, Plaintiff asserts that the Rudy case is an example of a case in which a court has previously asserted equitable jurisdiction to enjoin the government from using seized materials in an investigation pending review by a special master. That is incorrect. Smack smack down by Jack right there. As plaintiff recognizes, the court did not enjoin the government. Instead, the government itself volunteered that approach. Moreover, the records there were seized from an attorney's office. The review was conducted on a rolling basis, and the case did not involve a separate civil proceeding invoking a district court's anomalous jurisdiction. None of those is true here. Yours truly, Special Counsel Jack Smith. So pretty, pretty concise, pretty to the point. That, sorry, Jim, none of this applies to the current uh, to the current case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I remember when you were the first time you were on Mueller. She wrote, the episode was called Mueller Goes to Paper, and we talked about something that you mentioned in your book, uh, The Threat. By the way, excellent book. Everyone get it if you haven't already. And and that's how extraordinary it was for Mueller to write a letter to go to paper. Were you surprised to see a letter signed by Special Counsel, yours truly, Jack Smith, on Thanksgiving, no less, within days of his appointment?
2: You know, I what? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the attorney answer here. Yes and no. I was surprised that Smith is so engaged uh, and involved on this thing. Not only you know, imme- it, first of all, immediately and during the holiday. So I think it was a an impressive performance by Smith to really step in. Um, and drive the bus uh, on this letter, this response to Trustee's uh, pretty silly suggestion. But also not so surprised because this came in the context of like ongoing litigation. And it you know in that context of litigation, it's not un, uh, uncommon to see the sides really shooting pretty pretty pointed darts at each other in their filings and also in letters which are not quite as formal as official filings. And so lawyers tend to get uh, you know they let they let they get a little they let their snarky out a little bit more in the letters than they do like in an official brief. So, um, you know, it doesn't look like this particular litigation is going to continue. So we won't get to see too many more of these fireworks. But um, I think Jack Smith showed he's ready to take the gloves off right away. So should, these things should be fun to read as we go on.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I'm glad, and I, I hope to see more of him than we saw of Mueller. Maybe do some press conferences. I know we can't really talk about much, but I think it would go a long way to show the country that there is a sense of urgency here. And he has made statements to that effect, and I really appreciate that. And I also have to wonder, do you think this has been planned for a while? I mean, how long has Garland known he would appoint a special counsel? Because Jack Smith seems pretty red in, and Garland doesn't like surprises. So I, I can imagine him sitting here a year ago saying, Donald's going to run for president any second. got to be ready. Uh, and, you know, wondering... Um, uh, I guess within policy and with what's ethical how much Jack Smith knew before he was appointed that he was going to be appointed and what he needed to be caught up on if he was already caught up on it
2: well i think there's no question this thing has been deliberated in doj for a long time you're right they knew it was coming the likelihood that trump would run again is you know that was not hard to figure out um i also know from having suffered through so many of these you know, meetings over really controversial issues of first impression. Uh, you never decide anything in the first meeting, maybe not even in the first five meetings. Um, DOJ likes to admire a problem for a while before they before they commit to it. So I'm sure, and and Garland is a very careful guy. He is a jurist by heart, not a prosecutor so much, and so he's going to really kind of look at this thing from every possible angle before he makes a decision. I'm sure that he did that here. Um, my guess is they probably did decide pretty recently. It's clear he wanted to. He wanted to kind of choreograph the announcement of the decision with Trump's announcement of running again. I thought that was a kind of an artful touch by him. He's not a guy that seems to kind of go for that sort of sequencing naturally, but maybe he's there now. Um, whether or not Smith had any access to materials beforehand, that's a tougher one to answer. I don't. I don't know. My instinct would tell me. No, they wouldn't. Um, they probably wouldn't have read him in early. However, I think Jack Smith has been on their radar for a long time. I think he's someone probably at the very earliest discussions about who could maybe be a special counsel. I would guess that his name was discussed very early on. He is an incredibly capable prosecutor. He's got a sterling reputation within DOJ. He's done all this really cool stuff pursuing big political people. Uh, overseas in the in the war crimes context. Um, he also is is kind of known to be, not to have any sort of clear political preference for one side or the other, which is always helpful. So I, I think he's probably been in the mix for a long time, but he probably didn't have access to the actual data, you know, the case file until he got the nod.
1: Well, speaking of the 11th Circuit and the argument the Department of Justice was making to shut down the special master reviewing the non-classified documents, The court has issued its ruling, and here to discuss is political investigations reporter for Trump and the Department of Justice at The Guardian, Hugo Lowell. Welcome, Hugo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so just a couple questions for you. Um, I mean, we sort of saw this coming, first of all, because of the first uh, 11th Circuit appeal for the classified documents, uh, which was based on something called uh, a decision called Chapman out of the Fifth Circuit, uh, which is where the 11th Circuit came from. And then also, <laughs> the writing was pretty clear on the wall after the oral arguments. Can you talk a little bit about what the Eleventh Circuit found, and and uh, particularly as uh, as it connects to what is called equitable jurisdiction?
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the Eleventh Circuit seemed incredibly skeptical of kind of Trump's arguments that he should get special treatment because he's a former president during oral arguments, and he had the added disadvantage that two of the judges on this panel were also on the previous panel that ruled that Cannon had abused her discretion in granting the special master in the first place. So I think uh, it came as no surprise to anyone that they decided to vacate the special master ruling. But I think you know this was a real evisceration, real bench slap. I mean. The the eleventh circuit basically looked at each of the tests under Ritchie the the standards that you have to meet um, to to get equitable jurisdiction here um, and I guess Cannon decided that Trump met some of the other tests but pointedly also agreed that Trump did not meet that first test about you know whether Trump suffered callous disregard to his constitutional rights when the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago and this seemed to be the Kind of the tipping point point. and the 11th circuit i think was pretty clear and you know if you don't meet that kind of disregard standard the foremost standard then frankly you should not be getting any intervention but then more on a fundamental basis the 11th circuit was like well you shouldn't have got the special master in the first place because that's just not how this works right there was a search warrant that was lawfully executed the justice department seized these documents. It doesn't matter whether they were personal or, or privileged documents; they were seized. You're not an attorney, and so you really don't have uh, any any basis here to request a special master, in and Camden have any basis to grant you one.
1: Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the personal records designation. But first, I wanted to ask Andrew, Andrew, if you could jump in here uh, because of your you know investigatory uh, expertise. Why is it necessary? To have the non-classified documents that were commingled with the classified documents as part of evidence in a criminal investigation for having the
2: classified documents. Sure, and I and I think that's um, that goes right to kind of what's been everyone's focus on this story has been on the classified documents and the and the uh, incredibly sensitive nature of the stuff that they seem to have found at Mar-a-Lago, and that's rightfully so. That's a, a very uh, concerning national security matters there but we have to remember that the government is also investigating the mishandling or uh, the taking essentially of essentially presidential records writ large so every almost everything you do as uh, as president of the united states is considered a presidential record and all that material is the property essentially of all, all of us, right? The United States uh, citizens, and it's uh, entrusted to the National Archives. So even the non-classified records that they were able to seize at Mar-a-Lago are directly relevant to whether or not the president mishandled presidential records. So in a very general sense, they are basic evidence in that part of the inquiry. Also, the fact that many of these Less sensitive, non-classified items were commingled with uh, highly sensitive stuff. Shows a number of different things. It shows you what kind of disregard Trump had for the sensitivity of the materials he had. The fact that some of this was just kind of sitting in his desk or on the floor in his closet, mixed up with like gift bag T-shirts and and golf hats and uh, you know articles from the newspaper. So there's that. But also he had sensitive materials in his desk together commingled with records that are not sensitive but can be dated right so like um newspaper articles and things like that that shows you that he had an awareness a recent awareness of the fact that he had the sensitive items in his desk because He's storing them with other things that we know are very current. So if he's got yesterday's paper on top of a top secret SCI document in his desk, you can infer, and this is very powerful evidence to a jury, that he was dealing with this stuff recently, the sensitive stuff. It was out, it was in a place where he should have seen it. And in a, in a desk drawer that he's been going into recently, we know this by virtue of the of the article being there.
1: Right. And so, Hugo, when, you know, we know that by the Bates numbers, they found like three letters commingled with some classified documents in, the, in that dust drawer that were dated post-presidency kind of gives way to that awareness. What did the 11th Circuit say about things that are personal effects like that? And, and also, please, please tell us about the Celine Dion photos.
0: Well, I mean, can I just start by saying so the the documents in the drawer, we actually did a lot of reporting on this back in uh, mid-November because this kind of discovery was mentioned in a filing with the special master. So, you know, I think even if the justice department didn't want to release details of its investigation, I think for the general public and for kind of reporters like me, this was fantastic, the special master. Cause we, you know, we learned a whole bunch of things about how, you know, he had communications from a pollster and a communication from a book author commingled with a secret document and a confidential document. So, you know, this was, this was really, really fascinating with respect to kind of the personal effects, you know, it was, it was funny because in the oral arguments, this was the kind of the time that we learned that Trump was upset that his photo of Celine Dion uh, got seized in the August A search When you touch me like this and you hold me like that, I just have to admit that it's all coming back. Um, and I thought this was kind of ironic anyway because like if it was a photograph taken while, you know he was president, let's say taken by a you know, the White House photographer, then it'd be a presidential record, right? That it's government property, so it's not his to begin with. And if it was his personal one, then, you know, it's even more ironic because Trump wanted Celine Dion to play out his inauguration and she declined. And so it was kind of, it brought everything full circle, right? Like she didn't want him at the start of the presidency. He didn't get her at the end of the presidency either. But, you know, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about how the 11th Circuit was very clear that, the documents, the status of the documents doesn't matter. And, you know, they actually say in the ruling, you know, that all of these arguments are a sideshow. The fact of the matter is there was this search warrant, the warrant spelled out what could be taken, what could not be taken. And that included things that were, you know, documents or materials that might be adjacent to uh, kind of government records. And if it was adjacent, in this case, it appears to have been, then that's lawfully seized. By the Justice Department, and I think the Eleventh Circuit really got to the crux of the issue because we've been arguing around this for months and months and months. Um, and the fact of the matter is, at a pre indictment stage, Trump doesn't really have any recourse to get these documents back, especially if these if there's no need for them, right? And this was the other thing identified under Ritchie.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's such an important point, Hugo, because by, you know, I think some people may have been put off by this news that, oh, well, the 11th Circuit really focused on the jurisdictional question, and maybe that's like a legal technicality that doesn't matter. No, it's like unbelievably important because it goes right to this question of are we going to treat this person different because he was the president? Are we going to carve out um, a piece of equitable jurisdiction um, simply uh, you know, because he he was the president, he's more important are we going to give him a privilege that every single person who is the subject of a search warrant and that happens, Thousands of times a day around the country in all kinds of different cases, none of those people get that, uh, get that consideration or that extra kind of bite at the apple. So I think it was an incredibly important um, – it was important for the department to pursue this appeal for this reason exactly because it goes right to kind of the uh, fair application of the rule of law.
1: Yeah, and that was going to be my uh, question to to both of you, because that is the core, that's the crux of this decision here. I mean, the the 11th Circuit was saying, if we do this, we have to do this for everybody. Um, And also, that would be opening up the door for the courts to interfere in criminal investigations, which is a separation of powers issue. It is, it's unconstitutional, basically. I mean, Hugo, um, and then Andrew, you know, you can add on, but I mean, isn't that sort of what the entire thing is getting at? Is it like those core constitutional separation of powers issues?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, this this came up again uh, at oral arguments. You know, federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. You know, they can't just come in and join, in this case, the government from conducting a criminal investigation. Um, and I think this was kind of the fundamental issue at play here, right? What, and, and kind of the 11th Circuit was asking, what does what is so special in this case that trump gets this special treatment and really what it seemed to come down to at the end of the day was cannon decided um because trump was a former president she would show him extraordinary deference and the 11th circuit basically said look we're not creating new case law There's vastly there has been no case law in 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 this circumstance where you know a defendant a, def- a potential defendant can Enjoin the government during an executive branch criminal investigation. And we're not going to create new case law that says presence or former presence can basically undermine an ongoing criminal investigation. Yeah,
2: I think that's exactly right. You know, and and from a from a kind of operational perspective, as the speaking from the investigative side, it's absolutely unsustainable. The idea that um, every or even just some percentage of defend or subjects of investigation who have search warrants uh, executed at their homes or their offices or what have you, uh, would then have the opportunity to tie up the government for months and months and months and possibly start excluding evidence from their case before they're even charged. Um, that is just something that would not be uh, sustainable for, for the FBI or for any federal investigators. And I think it was a great thing that DOJ stepped in, took some risk on by pursuing this appeal, but did it to kind of preserve um, the government's ability to continue doing investigations in an efficient way.
1: Yeah. And, and before we let you go, Hugo, what are the next steps? Because obviously Donald Trump and uh, his Jim uh, trustee will probably appeal. But uh, remind us what happened the last time uh, Trump went to the Supreme Court uh, with an 11th circuit appeal? Because as we know, Justice Thomas sits atop the 11th Circuit as the chief justice of that particular circuit. So what what do you think we can expect from the Supreme Court and how quickly can we expect it?
0: Well, the last time Trump tried to appeal to the Supreme Court, it did not end well. And I think in this instance, he's probably going to fare even more poorly. Um, look, the, under local rules at the 11th Circuit, Trump can't get an en banc hearing. He has to go to SCOTUS. And given this three-judge panel included Bill Pryor, the appellate chief, I would be hugely surprised. It it would just be extraordinary for Justice Thomas to, you know, overturn or kind of reverse part of the Eleventh Circuit ruling, or even refer it to the full court. I actually think they just won't grant cert. I mean, it's really open and shut. And we've already had we already had a taster and kind of a, a preview of what the Supreme Court and what Justice Thomas thinks about this case um, in general because in the earlier appeal when the Justice Department was trying to regain access to the 103 classified documents and Trump appealed that um you know the Supreme Court basically said no dice and so I think the expectation among everyone including Trump's own lawyers by the way who I spoke to uh, one of whom I spoke to last night Is that the Supreme Court is probably not going to rule in Trump's favor. They might try it on because it might buy them extra time if they can get like an injunction or a stay uh, pending appeal, but I don't think anyone realistically believes the 11th Circuit's ruling is going to get changed in any way.
1: Yeah, and I think, Andrew, I think that's a common misconception that people have that these cases are different because one had classified documents and one had non-classified documents, but the core of each case, was the equitable jurisdiction, and if you don't have it in one, you don't have it in the other, and I don't see the SCOTUS doing anything differently.
2: No, that's and that's absolutely right. And and look, the the tenor and the tone of this opinion is total smackdown for Judge Cannon, and it, it, they're essentially saying there is no question here. There is this is a matter of very clear settled law, and on these facts, the result is clear. And you know, you. you You need to be able to bring more to the table to get the interest of the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, agreed. All right. Thank you so much, uh, political investigations reporter for Trump and the Department of Justice at The Guardian. Everyone follow Hugo Lowell on social media. And don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more news after this quick break.
2: Welcome back. We've got some more news in the special counsel investigation. So, A.G., just this morning, Pat Cipollone was seen entering the courthouse in D.C. where the grand jury meets. This is his second round of questioning. Uh, During the first round, apparently he did not answer some of the questions because Trump had asserted executive privilege over those conversations, those communications that he had when he was White House counsel. Well, DOJ went to court to argue that there is no executive privilege here and won. Chief Judge Beryl Howell who presides over the grand juries in these cases, ruled that there was no privilege and cleared the way for Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin, uh, his deputy, while he was uh, White House counsel, to answer questions. So you'll remember this privilege battle happened previously with top Vice President Pence aides Greg Jacob and Mark Short. Uh, Trump lost that one, and both men had to return to testify fully.
1: Yeah. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but Cipollone's testimony can cover both the January 6th investigation, the the Pence pressure campaign, all of the meetings, that crazy December 18th meeting and the documents case, because wasn't Cipollone answering some of the NARA documents questions early on?
2: That's absolutely right. Cipollone was right in the middle of this issue from the beginning, really issuing guidance, not just, this is key here, not just to then President Trump, but to the entire White House staff about how presidential records needed to be handled at the end of the administration. So um, had that communication simply been between the two of them, you could have a stronger argument that it was covered by executive privilege or attorney-client privilege. Um, but in this case, it, he's, you know, Cipollone issuing legal guidance to the entire uh, White House staff. Uh, that stuff is going to be fair game. We also know that Philbin pr- played a pretty prominent role in the White House's first interactions with and responses to the National Archives uh, questions. So the two of them could really have uh, some interesting information for the grand jury about the Mar-Lago case.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and I I wanted to ask you before we get out of here what your thoughts are on the timeline of this case, because I know back in the Mueller days, you guys were investigating like 10 months before Mueller was appointed. And then within five months uh, is when the first indictments came down for Manafort and Rick Gates uh, in in that investigation. Uh, What do you see as the timeline here? Uh, What restrictions do we have with regard to getting a trial done before a presidential election? And, and do you think that that Trump faces an indictment in either of these cases or both
2: Sure so um again kind of going back to that theme of the differences between our current situation and the situation my team and I had uh, leading up to Mueller special counsel you know we were engaged in a much more kind of kind of typical counterintelligence investigation and I say that because, Often, counterintelligence investigations are very amorphous. You know, you have information that indicates a threat to national security might exist, and then you have to go out there and figure out whether that actually is the case. Is something happening that we need to be careful about? Um, and so, there's they're they're harder to get started. They typically take a lot longer, and that's essentially what we turned over to Mueller. This case is very very different. You have those two uh, primary investigations: Mar-a-Lago and January sixth. Mar-a-Lago is like a three-quarters baked loaf of bread, right? (laughs) We all know from what's been in the public reporting what kind of evidence they got, when they got it. We now know from all the filings, the court filings, and the battle over the special master, all of the interactions between DOJ and the Trump folks leading up to the search warrant. So they have, we know the government already has a lot of really significant evidence. I'm sure they have some work to do, but I think that Mar-a-Lago comes to a head, a decisional point. Um, pretty quickly, and yeah,
1: and you and you know, I would have to mention here: the Eleventh Circuit actually mentioned in their ruling, um, overturning the Judge Cannon's order for special master, that when there was a subpoena, Trump responded, and his team, the Office of Donald John Trump, responded to the subpoena with a double-taped red-weld envelope, indicative of how you would handle classified materials, and and so they. Pointed that out in their decision, and I think this is a pretty open and sh- open and shut case, as even with obstruction.
2: Yeah, I mean that they, they have painted themselves into so many corners on this thing. I think we could probably do a whole episode on that, but you know, and I and I know from uh, hard experience, there are there's no such thing as a slam dunk. But this thing is pretty much three quarters baked. Um, so I think it comes to that decision of whether or not. Uh, Trump and anyone else around him gets indicted uh, strictly over the Mar-Lago issue. I think that's coming up pretty soon. And quite frankly, um, I can't, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario in which he does not get indicted. Um, Just based on the information that we know, there's probably much more that we don't know that the government also has. Um, And it it holds echoes of the 11th Circuit's decision, right? Are we going to treat this person so much differently than we would any other person simply because he was president? I think the answer to that has to be no. And I'll tell you from having investigated mishandling cases and all kinds of different espionage matters. If you were a former government employee or a government officer on these facts, you're getting indicted. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you. So, um, so I, I I kind of expect it to go in that direction. You know, who knows? Anything can happen. January sixth is the longer term target, right? That one's a little further out. Much more complicated set of facts. Much tougher decisions for the prosecutors to make, for Jack Smith to make uh, at the end of the day. You know, I would expect they're going to have to kind of fish or cut bait to some extent before we get too deep into the election cycle. Um, So I would expect that certainly by the end of 2023, we should know what's happening in that case as well. But, you know, my predictions are worth what you paid for them.
1: (laughs) Now, if we go by Watergate timeline, which lines up really nicely, by the way, with the Mueller investigation timeline. My prediction has been, since the beginning, that indictments would start coming for the top of the, the coup plotters in January 6th, for the, the, those in charge, you know, who directed the January 6th uh, fraudulent electors scheme and Pence pressure campaign, obstructing an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States. If we go by those timelines, it's April of next year. And as we know, the Watergate investigation was much simpler than what we are looking at with the January six fraudulent electors way. scheme and
2: yeah way
1: and so April twenty twenty three would be rocket ship lightning fast. Uh, I know everyone for the last year and a half has been like why wow, it's taken so long it's taken so long it's taken so long. I've said from the beginning don't expect anything before April twenty twenty three. This cannot go faster than Watergate
2: went. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably there, there's there's no perfect analogs here, but that's probably about the best one you're gonna get.
1: Yeah, we don't really have a lot of uh, coup plotting, insurrection investigations to uh, compare it to.
2: (laughs) Thank God. Thank Um, God.
1: All right. Well, thank you uh, so much. This has been a wonderful first show. Uh, I appreciate all of your insight. Thank you for doing this show with me. Thanks to our patrons uh, who will get this show uh, early and ad free at the $5 level or higher. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, I'm really excited to see where the show goes and where the investigations go. Um, with that, you know, hey, I've been A.G. And I am Andrew McCabe. So a big thanks to Hugo Lowell at The Guardian. We'll be back next Sunday with all things special counsel.
0: Send me to jail.
1: M.S.W. Media.